0: Welcome everyone to episode one of the Project Liberal podcast. Uh, I My name is Josh Weckel. I'm one of the co-founders of Project Liberal. Joined today, uh, which will be a common occurrence by uh, the other co-founder, Jonathan Casey. Jonathan, good afternoon. Hello. hello. hello.
1: Glad yeah. to get this finally started. I, I like that we're starting off with a hot topic right now. I think it'll be good.
0: Yeah, we started off, decided to start off the show with an extremely non-controversial common you know, topic that that won't c- ruffle any feathers by any means. Um, we're going to talk a bit about myths around vaccinations and vaccines. Um, one of the reasons why we decided to do this was there uh, was a recent episode between um, RFK Jr. and Joe Rogan, and it really brought into the national conversation, uh, you know, uh, around, he brought up in the national conversation a lot of dialogue around the efficacy of vac- vaccines. And so there's a lot of nuance to unpack there. And uh, what I wanted to do was just have an intelligent conversation with somebody who's looked at the data. So that leads me to our guest uh, today, who is Jacob Rich. Now, Jacob Rich, he's a Ph.D. student at uh, the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and he's a policy analyst at Reason. Everyone loves Reason. Jacob, thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're looking forward to the conversation. Um, so you've got, everyone's got the context. So uh, we're going to talk a bit about vaccines, vaccine myths, and try to get into the data. I know, Jacob, you spent a little bit of time looking at some of the studies. And I know that as an epidemiologist, you spent a lot of time looking at data around this issue. So I'm very interested to kind of hear your feedback and talk a little bit back and forth about this. So I wanted to open up and set, some, set the tone for the conversation, and then we'll jump into some questions and get the dialogue going. Um, so first and foremost, we're going to skip over all the claims that RFK made about Wi Fi in the brain and blood barrier and cell phones causing tumors and the gay frog study, which I think, yeah, we're going to skip over all that. We're going to talk only really about the vaccinations and some of the vaccination claims. And one of the things that I thought would be wise for us to start off with is talking a bit about the nuance between anti vax and what I might say is always vax, like just so, you know, always kind of buying the vaccine narrative. So I wanted to kick us off first and foremost by asking the round table, maybe. Jacob, you can kick us off with this one. What does anti-vax mean to you? When you hear that word, what does that conjure up? Like what's your gut reaction?
2: Uh, To put it concisely, anti-vax to me is just the failure to recognize that vaccines are one of the three most important human innovations over the last 300 years or so. Like if you think about number one innovation is electricity. That's very obvious how that's affected all of our lives. Uh, Number two would be antibiotics just an incredible innovation that has made like hospital settings and even living at home safer. And then number three is vaccines. Just the you know, un, just unprecedented level of life that has been saved from these interventions is absolutely massive. And when people write off vaccines just as a group, I consider that to be anti-vax.
0: Makes sense. Uh, J- Jonathan, what's your thoughts? Yeah, your
1: I, 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 I describe it similar. I, I, uh, uh interpret the word, the term anti the same way Jacob does here. But I think that in the narrative, broader narrative, anti-vax has come to mean some different things. The left is really, I think the rough really messed up by describing anyone who was skeptical of the COVID vaccination or anyone who kind of questioned it, or even anybody who was just against uh, against mandates themselves, not, not being against the vaccine, but just being against the mandates. They described them as anti-vax. And I think that that did a lot of harm uh, by broadening the term anti-vax to include anybody that was even slightly questioning things or just opposing the mandates.
0: Yeah. Well, well said. You actually took the words out of my mouth. That was where I was going to go with it. I, I personally, when I hear the word anti-vax, I think of somebody who's opposed to vaccines. Um, but nowadays, and even RFK touched, touched on this, when he talked to Joe Rogan in, in the show, uh, that word has come to mean a lot of different things to different people. So I thought it was important to get that out of the way. Cause I had a feeling that word was going to pop up at some point. So thank you both for the context. So, Okay, so let's just actually get into the meat of it then. So I don't know, maybe you could set us up with some of the context, Jacob. Um, Do you have uh, maybe the things that you took away, the key points in that podcast, that episode between RFK and Joe Rogan, and what do you think? You know, do you have any commentary on maybe how that affects the public conversation or public understanding of vaccines? Any two cents on that?
2: Sure. Uh, When I when I watched the RFK Jr. Joe Rogan podcast, I was struck by how genuine RFK seemed to be and not only just genuine but he seemed to actually have been incredibly well read like like uh, i told you guys i actually like looked into all of the studies before we came here and basically all of his authors titles even the year of publication seemed to be correct and when he was citing the findings of the studies he was remarkably accurate now how he interprets some of those studies i have issue with and we'll get into the meat of that later but I think there are some true things that he said that are completely being written off. And even when you have smart commentators like Vinny Prasad and others who are basically giving him his due and discussing various uh, places where he's right, such on regulatory capture of the FDA, they don't actually get into the specific studies that he brought up. And I think that's an incredibly important conversation to have. Makes were it. there any
1: were there any studies that you looked at and go, oh, this sheds a new light on something or this was a really good like you said that he made some good points. Let's start with those. What were some of the good the th- thoughts that he put out there that you kind of agreed with or or at least thought that were being you know misinterpreted or misunderstood? Sure. So when he discusses the
2: issues with the bear system and our ability to even track whether harms are happening in the first place, he's absolutely correct. Uh, We need to update our, uh, I mean, we need to update just medical damage and medical injuries from pharmaceutical products in general. So this just isn't for vaccines, but when he makes the claim that there's really not good data to look into these things, to even judge whether they're safe or not, he's completely correct. And he actually cited a CDC study that tried to machine count these things, and he cited the correct uh, percentage it was like, think about like 2.7 percentage chance of an adverse outcome from a vaccine. Like that is technically correct, but what he tends to, he tends to conflate things. So what is an adverse outcome? Well, it's not a 2.7% chance of autism. Right. It's like maybe a 2.7% chance that like your arm hurts after you get the COVID vaccine. And JAMA Network Open already looked into this they saw that there was actually like a 48% chance adverse outcome from the COVID vaccine, but the majority of it was fatigue or your arm hurting. And that's not really a good reason not to take a vaccine.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people anecdotally can relate to that. Like, I mean, with the COVID vaccine, I know people would kind of report many off often I would hear people report getting sick or kind of having some sort of pain in there so that that makes complete sense. Is that the one in thirty seven number that he gave because I remember at one point during the episode he said something like one in thirty seven were injured. Yeah, by yeah, I'm just making sure that's the one that I was thinking about. okay, gotcha. Um, when somebody yeah.
1: reports to the very system. there's no follow up on that. there's no um there's no investigation of that. It's simply a reporting to a system. Do you know how how does that process really work? I mean, it's, it's it's kind of involved, actually,
2: and you have to go okay. through some loops. But as far as I'm aware, actually, anyone can enter into the VAR system. It's just that it's a massive undercount of what's actually happening. He's, he's completely correct when he says that that's, it's an undercount of adverse events. And it's really dependent on the selection bias of people even reporting in the first place.
0: So it's really hard to gauge what's going on in the population from the system. Noted. Noted. Okay, so why don't we take a step back and talk about big picture stuff? I there was a, there was at one point I think one of the the takeaways that at least I had and I think a lot of people had about uh, that episode was that RFK kind of in 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 multiple ways kind of alluded to the idea that vaccines are causing general harm to the public. Um what do you think about that kind of narrative? I mean, we, you obviously disagree with that based on, I think from what we talked about at the beginning that vaccines have been one of the greatest inventions of you know humanity. Um, but kind of what do you think the scientific consensus is on the harm around vaccine? Is there any any grain of truth to that?
2: Um, There are specific products that we can discuss later. You could actually like go to the is either the CDC or the FDA, but they actually have an entire list of retracted, like vaccines. And they also have an entire list of retracted medical products because all medical products are developed and sometimes harms and, caught, you know, various things that follow are not documented during the process. But the the effect of vaccines is actually much more remarkable than most people acknowledge. So consider polio. Polio has, until like very, very recently where when we had an outbreak, I think it was like maybe in New York, it was basically eradicated throughout the entire world. And the only cases of polio that were happening were basically polio that was caused by the vaccine. And some people might say like, oh, that's kind of dangerous, but you're having like about 33 incidents of polio a year out of like millions of doses. So the probability that anything happens to you is incredibly low, but people then ask further, like, why are we continuing to vaccinate for polio if polio is gone? Like any risk of something bad happening is maybe something that you want to avoid. And this is when uh, we can actually look into the research by Christine uh, Stable Bell. Um, She has actually looked at the non-specific effects of vaccines. Basically, if you follow the population, through time and actually look at other types of outcomes, other than whether you catch the disease or not, you can actually determine other types of outcomes. So even though polio has been eradicated throughout the world, when polio is distributed in various uh, African countries, we actually see a about, I think, a 20% reduction in mortality among the group. And that's because viruses are actually somewhat similar in structure with each other. So being exposed to a polio that you most surely can beat might prepare you for encountering uh, the flu. And there's actually pretty good documentation about how polio vaccination actually fights against influenza. And maybe you're thinking, well, I I live in a developed country. Like I I don't have to really worry about such diseases in Africa that are uh, disproportionately caused by uh, sanitation, clean water and whatnot. But even looking at some European countries, the polio vaccine was associated with about a 20% reduction in just the incidence of respiratory disease among children. So just all of these massive benefits that like, not even at the like the level of, did you survive polio? Just like, are you surviving more often? Yeah. Are you getting sick less often? Like those benefits seem to perpetuate with uh, live vaccines when they're distributed. And it's wonderful.
0: Absolutely. That is wonderful. Um, and Jonathan, don't let me take all the questions, but I, I did actually, you, you triggered a thought um, because one of the things that was brought up in, in that discussion was, uh, you know, if we look at, if we take away all the kind of concerns about vaccines that are out there right now and kind of the way it's working in the modern world, he pointed to a specific example of the Spanish flu. And he talked about how, yeah. I think at one point he claimed that the Spanish flu pandemic was caused by vaccines. Uh, which, I, you know, I think before COVID-19 was one of the other, like, most, uh, uh, one of the largest uh, uh, pandemic events we've had in, in the history of the human race. I'm curious as to, uh, if you exclude the plagues maybe, um, but I'm curious as to what you think about that claim and uh, whether there's any credibility to that claim at all. So there's absolutely no
2: credibility to the idea that a vaccine caused the flu. But this is where RFK starts talking about things and when he needs to be taken serious. He is onto the trail of regulatory capture. And it is very well speculated in the top journals of medicine that the deaths caused by the Spanish flu might have been manufactured by the public health approach. This is not conclusive, but around the time of the Spanish flu, aspirin was a relatively new drug. And if you look at what the Navy, the Surgeon General and the Journal of the American Medical Association were uh, advocating for, they were actually using aspirin to treat the flu. And they were suggesting levels that not known at the time, but known now were toxic. And it's like, oh, it killed so many people in the military. Well, the military was disproportionately using these methods. And it it seems to be the case that there might've been regulatory capture of pharmaceutical companies trying to sell aspirin that might've led to this. Uh, we do have to look into the documentation a little bit more, but if we look at animal studies, when animals are given aspirin, they are much more likely to suffer from respiratory conditions. And mm-hmm. RFK is completely correct. That bacteria was what actually killed the people. So the flu weakened them. Yep. And then they died from bacteria. And this is not, I mean, this is not really any evidence that something other than the Spanish flu killed them. If you think about AIDS, it's not technically AIDS that kills you. AIDS weakens your immune system, then something trivial kills you. But it probably, in my opinion, not conclusive opinion, but it probably is the case that they got too much aspirin and then the bacteria were able to invade their lungs. It was actually a constructed crisis. And that's really why we need to get away from the centralization approach to things. Because if you make one little mistake as a centralized actor, then every single person across the country is affected by that mistake, and we also have no ability
1: to learn on how to improve.
0: Well, one yeah. The, Sorry, Jonathan, go for it.
1: <clears throat> one of the things that I think we should have learned, we hopefully have learned from COVID, is that a one-size-fits-all solution doesn't doesn't work, and that we we do have to you know allow doctors to treat their own patients and and you know I I don't want to use the term experiment but if everyone's using the exact same treatment are we you know before we really understand a disease are we really learning the best practices for it do we or really happens. know what is or isn't working for it I mean it, it, you know I think if if we have a centralized authority saying don't do this don't do that while well, in some cases that they may be correct but in others they they might not if, if everyone you know you either you don't want to be in a situation where you're you're either 100% wrong or 100% right. You want to have some some flexibility within that to allow doctors to treat patients in different ways.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert, but from what I saw, I think everyone saw this anecdotally with COVID. I mean, the idea that we need to have some sort of top-down government shutdown um when rural communities for example you you know there's far less population density you'd see like a less likelihood of transmission than if you say we're in an urban community i mean why would we treat all these communities the same and why would we have centralized approaches when those localities are going to understand what's best for public health at least theoretically um than say one person at the top so i think it's a really good point jacob um okay uh jonathan you you got a question or thought before i go to my next one
1: no i'm i'm curious I'm curious as when you look across, is this a similar, you know, you have a Spanish flu, you've got COVID. When these treatments come out, you know, how does the medical facility, how does does the medical field talk to each other and say, this is what's working for us, this is what's not working for us? You know, at the beginning of COVID, it really felt like a lot of doctors, you know, a lot of treatment options, they were really trying things out. How does the medical field actually talk to each other and communicate to figure out these these treatment plans? It's...
2: uh, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate because medicine has become increasingly regulated. And a big reason for this is because in order to receive Medicaid and Medicare dollars, you have to fulfill regulations on hospitals from Medicaid and Medicare. And it's very hard not to take that money because Medicaid and Medicare are, I think, as of now, over 50 percent of The spending in the United States. So people like to call the United States a capitalist system for uh, medicine. It's absolutely not. It's um, the majority is funded by the states and organized by the states. So increasingly, what has happened is medicine has become not a practice. You know how we kind of talk about medicine. Some people are like, "I I practice medicine." It really isn't like that anymore. It's more of a protocol. You find very smart intelligent people who can memorize protocols, and they do what the protocol is. And that's kind of what our approach to pandemics is now. Hmm. Basically, the public health authorities say what they think is best, and the doctors just go forward with the orders. And we really need to get away from that. Because when they're right, they're right. But when they're wrong, they're wrong. And you guys are familiar with Hayek. If you don't have the information for your specific circumstance, it can be incredibly disastrous, just as COVID was. Yeah, absolutely. We're- well, I want. I want
1: to get us back to vaccines in a second, but I want to kind of continue along this thread. You know, the, the government is so intertwined in our healthcare system and so overbearing in our healthcare system, and sometimes it, you know. At, at, it, it, you look at it and go, how can we start to disentangle government from these these decisions, this centralized authority from these decisions? Where do we start? Where do we look at it and go, okay, we can we can do this change and this change and this change? Where are some of those things that we could do tomorrow? Because I, I know that it would take many years, if not many lifetimes, to truly untangle our government uh, from our healthcare system. But what would be some of the first steps you would say? Okay, these are these are actions we can take now that would help kind of uh, reduce that role. Um. I'm not exactly
2: sure because this is a little bit outside of my research, but I have thought about it a little bit. So yeah. I'll, I'll spitball a little bit here. Go I'm sure it. you're both familiar with the school choice movement, right? Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we motivate state governments to turn Medicaid into a voucher system?
0: Okay. okay. and okay, then Can you elaborate on the benefits of that just from your perspective? Again, spitballing.
2: <laughs> I mean, basically it creates a market of providers and then providers are going to compete for the money that the government's giving and if you look at various european countries this is called a managed competition hmm. and it actually works pretty well so basically there are insurance companies that the government sets very limited regulations on on what they have to provide and then they all compete for your uh, government dollars that are given to you so we could start at the states, states generally have the power to do this with their Medicaid dollars. And we move further once that seems to be a success by turning Medicare completely into that. Now, I I think this works better for Medicaid because the um, consequences for Medicaid are not quite as high, but the existence of Medicare is actually very bad for our private insurance system. Basically, our private insurance system right now just has to keep you alive until you're 65. And then they can dump you on Medicare. And that's an incredibly terrible incentive. So if people had private insurance up through their entire life, the private insurance, because it's trying to save money, would actuarially try to give you more preventative treatment and try to motivate you to be healthy. And without the private insurance actually carrying out the services for older people, they don't have that incentive. They could just Keep you alive for a little bit, then dump you on the government when you're most expensive.
0: It's very interesting. I never never considered that. Yeah, I was going to say it's very interesting how those those incentives kind of stack up to real human impact. I don't think a lot of people really truly think about that dynamic. Those economic factors that kind of go into whether or not you live a healthy, happy, and fulfilled life have a lot to do with government incentives that people just don't really think about. Um, That's a powerful way to look at it, Jacob. Um, I am curious. Are you guys cool with going back to vaccines? Talking yeah. a little bit back about that. Well, okay, okay, <laughs> I'm just making sure. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the elephant in the room. Uh, whenever you talk about vaccines, it's the autism study, and I, I want to say that the autism study that was brought up was the one in pediatrics in 2004. I, I could be wrong. Maybe that's not the one he mentioned on Joe Rogan. I think, but okay, 2004, yeah. Okay, okay, got it. So. I'm curious as to whether you could clarify a bit on the current scientific understanding between that link. Is there a link? Is there any credibility to that narrative?
2: Well, if you look at that study in particular, there was no association with autism. There was an association of like various ticks that people might associate with autism. But uh, oh, let me rephrase that. Basically, they there was two waves of the study and the first wave showed that there was an association with ticks, but when they corrected for factors in the second wave, then the association went away. And then they were very clear to say that there wasn't an association with autism anywhere in the study at all. So basically what RFK Jr. is claiming here is that there was a conspiracy to hide the true study results. And I think it was like a Simpson event that happened in the early 2000s where they like went over the data and then the data were pulled from the people yeah. and then they were never published. So this is like a conspiracy that I do not really think is legitimized, but I I will say that when it comes to autism, there's really not much evidence of vaccines causing autism at all. But again, it's really hard to even measure autism as an outcome. Like the idea and the spectrum of autism has been expanding. So without a consistent definition of autism to look over time to see if anything correlates with it, there's really no way to determine whether anything actually associates with autism. So autism's just really off the table in terms of looking as an outcome for any sort of medical
0: intervention. I, I think that's a really balanced way to put that. And is that tied to the fact that when you say the definition has changed, we're talking about, say, the introduction of like Asperger's and kind of that spectrum there, that yeah. spec- Is that something that's new just within the last 20 years or- um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm not too familiar with the background of that.
1: Well, what would you tell somebody who's, you know, worried about these studies? And okay, well, it does look, you know, to them, it says, well, they're messing with the numbers or they're, what checks and balances do these studies have that you would say, okay, here's, here's evidence that they, it's, you know, difficult to, to uh, just, you know, if somebody's not just going to go in and change the numbers or what kind of, you know, who looks at these data, who looks at this and ensures that the data isn't just being moved around to come up with whatever result they want?
2: Sure. So this is another place where RFK Jr. might actually have a little bit of a point. Uh, people are monitored in all clinical trials, and all, all basically all drugs, at least in the initial version of the drug, go through randomized trials to make sure that they're safe. And that they're effective. But they're because of how would you put it ethics concerns. If a drug is shown to be effective, then everyone who's in the control group is actually exposed to the drug because it's considered unethical not to expose them to the drug. So if there is a long term mortality outcome associated with a drug, you basically will never know unless it's incredibly obvious. We are not going to be able to compare the exposure and the control groups over time because the control group is often going to be exposed to the drug once it's shown that it's efficacious. So it's really hard to actually make any sort of relative mortality arguments about drugs. And I think that's a, a, a giant limitation of what's in front of us right now. I would just say like, for someone who's looking to vaccinate their children, you should look into a bunch of the bell studies about just how mortality in general seems to drop and the vaccines where that seems to be the case, you should have no problem giving that to your child. And I mean, like 33 cases of polio out of millions of doses, those aren't bad odds. You have a higher chance of dying on the way to the hospital than your child getting harmed by that vaccine.
0: Well said, I, um, as I, I have two babies under two right now, and I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that and had a similar, uh, similar understanding after looking at the numbers. One of the things that also was brought up to Jacob during that uh, podcast was the conversation about mercury. Um, mm-hmm. and mercury's presence in vaccines. Uh, can you comment on that? I think one of the anecdotes that I thought was interesting, and Jonathan, I think you were the one that had talked about this, was the mercury level in a vaccine is equivalent to a can of tuna or something like that. Um, do you have any commentary on that whole mercury? I, I, I do. So first
2: off, there's two different types of mercury, and the differences, or at least two different types of mercury that like are discussed here. And the differences between these mercury like a single molecule and if you look at alcohol you have ethyl and methyl alcohol one gets you drunk and is great and the other one kills you so like a very small difference in the composition of the molecule can be massive in terms of harm but the mercury that is used in these vaccines really isn't safe at large levels and that's actually the reason why it's used because you use it as an agitator and basically when the dead virus is next to an agitator your body creates an immune response and it's actually by design so that the body recognizes something is harmful and then it conflates the dead virus with what's harmful so it's actually all by design this but this this is actually another point that we actually need to take very serious because if you look at some of the bell studies and a bunch of other studies that have looked at DTP vaccinations in Africa and this is where RFK was actually citing the studies and was like pretty pretty accurate about what he saw. The there was actually some studies in top medical journals that showed that there was an overall increase in mortality that followed the DTP vaccine vaccines. I'm not exactly sure how to make of that. I don't know what the public health implications are for the United States with those observations, but Uh, When he cites further that there was another study that's actually in an NIH uh, funded journal about how they gave those vaccines to monkeys and then they found the mercury in the brain. I mean, that's just one study. Uh, Maybe that's actually not the case. Maybe there was an error with that study. But it's it's actually really um, funny that a DT vaccine was actually recalled this year. And Denmark has actually been funding researchers to look into this. So that's like where you actually have to give the devil his due. Sure. And when people just completely criticize RFK and don't get into the meat of what he's saying, then other people actually listen to him. They actually read the studies and it actually takes uh, competent public health researchers to address these concerns. And that really has not been done yet, which is kind of sad.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, um, and maybe I, I, uh, misunderstood, so tell me if I'm wrong, but with the specific vaccine that you referenced that, um, potentially could have caused increased mortality. Um, was that, does that vaccine specifically have an increased level of mercury than other vaccines or like, yeah. it, Oh, it does. Yeah. Okay. It has
2: that that specific vaccine has the mercury in it. It's not okay. even clear that mercury is the, the factor Okay. where that mercury is even doing I see is a concern and a bunch of other vaccines have mercury in them too and sure. these types of results have not been found okay. but i you know what i mean it's like something that he's pointing it's like mercury's bad we agree it's in this vaccine we we agree hey look at these studies that show that there's actual harm that are in top medical journals journals oh crap yep you know what i mean yeah, so it's, no absolutely it needs to be investigated absolutely wasn't so,
1: much of mercury uh removed from vaccines back in thimerosal. Uh, wasn't that wasn't that removed from a lot of vaccines or am I wrong in that? Yeah, that, that was the concern. That's that's the type of mercury we're talking about. Yeah. Are there any childhood vaccine, uh, vaccines that do still have mercury in them or has that been in the U.S. at least? Great question. Um, I was under
2: the in- impression that the DTP still does and okay. that it's recommended for children hmm. and that the CDC, still, CDC still recommends it for children but uh, yeah. it's, it's not it's not even clear what type of vaccine they were even using or what company's vaccine it could be the case that dtp is actually incredibly efficacious just the one that they chose for africa is specifically causing problems right
0: understood do you uh, again not to get too much in the weeds but do we know roughly when they removed uh that vac- uh, mercury from most childhood vaccines was that it happened 2000 early? was, was i remember started around there I'm genuinely curious about that one i wasn't aware Very interesting. Okay. Um, all right. So that's the mercury conversation (laughs) to some degree. Um, let's talk a bit about the COVID vaccine because this is where things start to break down. I think, um, I think that even among many of the most pro vaccine people, uh, I've seen skepticism among COVID vaccine among the COVID vaccine recent years. Um, So one of the things that I wanted to just talk about uh, to kick us off on the COVID conversation was around the speed of the vaccine development. This was was hailed as an amazing achievement of science, but due to the speed and the the rate of deployment of this vaccine also caused a lot of skepticism and concern. So I'm curious as to whether or not you have any question or any commentary on whether you think it was rushed when looking at the data. And if it was rushed, what are the implications or just any thoughts on the speed to market with that vaccine?
2: I think the speed to market was absolutely wonderful and that all drugs should be approved at least this fast if results can be shown. Sure. I think I think, that, I think the FDA, there's this joke among libertarians about like who kills more people every year, the US military or the FDA. And the yep. joke is that like the FDA delays life-saving treatments from coming to market. How many millions in the US, hundreds of thousands and or millions across the world would actually benefit by these drugs coming a year or two earlier. So anything that can speed up the FDA process when a signal of efficacy and safety is shown is is absolutely fantastic.
1: It's interesting. And he he yeah. cited several sorry, he cited several studies that, that said that there was very little difference between like there's only one or two, you know, there's um uh, in the vaccinated and those with the placebo with the COVID vaccine that they were that they were very similar in the results by a couple, but a couple numbers made the difference in that They were able to claim as 100 percent efficiency because of just a couple differences, like a couple like a handful of numbers difference between the placebo group and the vaccine group. Can you speak to that or. So
2: the way that these trials were designed was that they were comparing the severity of disease of people who contracted COVID in the exposed versus the non exposed group. And in terms of relative numbers there, they are sufficient to show that there was definitely a major difference. But I actually do have a qualm with the development of the COVID vaccines, not in the time frame, yeah, but yeah. in terms of the specific outcome. We saw a bunch of discussions about how the COVID vaccines were not shown to prevent transmission. Well, that's exactly true. They were shown to reduce um, risk of adverse outcome from infection. And that was the outcome variable that they shot to uh, accomplish. And that's what they did. So I think like in the future, the best way to determine whether a vaccine is effective or not, and this is going to require possibly a larger population, maybe more money for participants because of that, and maybe even maybe a little bit longer time period than we, we saw for COVID. Uh, depending on how large the population is but i think we should be looking at all cause mortality basically do more people survive in the exposed group versus the non-exposed group and if you look at christine ben's research on that the initial data of the COVID vaccine do not really show much of a difference actually the johnson and johnson vaccine was incredibly good at uh reducing mortality but the mortality difference between the mRNA vaccines and the placebo group were really indistinguishable. <laughs> now, here's a qualm with that. The, the, the treatments were, because this was so fast, it was only like two to six months that people were actually exposed to the vaccine within the control group. So they all became vaccinated. So they have a very small amount of data to make these comparisons, but it, it is interesting to think about like what would have happened as these, uh, trials would have carried on and what's a little bit concerning is that if you look at the mortality risk from the mrna vaccine within the studies the the mortality risk from covid was completely uh, demolished like people were not dying of covid but there actually was an increase in cardiovascular death and it's actually cardiovascular death increase within the vaccine studies themselves that makes the placebo group indistinguishable from the uh from from the exposed
0: group understood and so that's the whole mitocardinus uh conversation right one of the one of the things that i heard and again this is me going off of my memory from reading something months ago so i apologize if it's off base but uh one of the things i heard was that COVID itself has a mitocardinus or some sort of uh cardiovascular impact uh, or at least could demonstrate that in long term is that an accurate statement or am i uh, spouting misinformation <laughs> do you do you know anything about that
2: i mean it looks like there's a non-zero amount of myocarditis going on and that all basically if you have myocarditis it is always um extreme understood. basically like your your heart tissue does not redevelop like other tissues in your body so any damage to your heart could potentially be long-term understood
0: understood
1: one of the things i wanted to ask you about was you you hear a lot of People talking about, well, the, the COVID-19 vaccine, that wasn't a vaccine, it's 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 not a vaccine. They've changed the definition of what a vaccine is. So it's, you know, what do you say to somebody who approaches you with that and says, no, it's it's not actually a vaccine? Um, it's a vaccine.
2: <laughs> okay. I, you know, like, I mean, but that's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, a vaccine should prepare you to encounter a pathogen. And that's what it does. Um, Some vaccines are better than others. Uh, Does the COVID vaccine perfectly vaccinate as in, does it cause sterilizing immunity? No, but there's pretty strong evidence that it was incredibly effective against infection during the alpha wave, at least
0: noted. Yeah. Noted. And that's powerful. Yep. Sorry, Jonathan, go for it.
1: (laughs) Do you have any numbers on or any idea on how many lives overall would you think were saved or have you seen any studies that kind of, Estimate how many lives were saved either worldwide or uh, nationwide uh, because the vaccine was deployed so quickly. Or, you know, do you have a general sense of of that kind of rough number? Because I've heard I've heard numbers all ranging all over the place. So I didn't know if you had a good a sense. Yeah. Of so um, in the United States,
2: I forget the exact number, but it's like hundreds of thousands. I think maybe like around seven or eight hundred thousand, and then across the entire world, it's a million.
0: So. That goes back to the the comment you made about what would have happened if the FDA would have delayed or gotten away. I mean, you're talking um, about hundreds of thousands, I,
2: and I Why? think it's very clear that there are populations within the United States and the entire world that uh, massively benefited from vaccination. So, uh, if I hope if there is any sound bites taken at me tonight, they listen to that first. I made that claim because it's absolutely true. Noted. I mean, there is relative risk differences for various groups, and it's not clear what the cost-benefit analysis is for vaccination versus being exposed to the virus younger people. Like, yeah. over fifty percent of young people who are exposed and catch COVID have no symptoms. So, you know what I mean. Like, if there's any measurable myocarditis risk, especially when that myocarditis risk is concentrated in young men. Yeah. Like, how do you make those comparisons? I don't think we have good data to do
0: that. I think that's completely reasonable. I mean, again, if you have a child, for example, a toddler or a young child that has a very, like, probably what, 0.01% chance or less of having any impact or yeah. dying of COVID, You're, you, you got to make that decision as a parent. Yeah.
2: One, more, well, one more comment.
0: Um, COVID itself causes myocarditis. Oh, yeah, that yeah. That's oh. and that, that was my takeaway when I when I heard that. I was like, okay, well, it would make sense that the vaccine might also have that kind of adverse effect because and, of that. Yeah.
1: One thing I want one thing I want to point out here too, and I think this is relevant to what we're talking about. This is, you know, we're talking about relative risks. We're talking about we all take risks every day. Going to the doctor to get the vaccine has its own amount of risk. Going anywhere with our children has its own amount of risk. Like for myself, I had three children. We talked to, you know, make make those judgment calls on whether the risk of vaccination uh, is 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 weighed by the risk of not vaccinating? Or, for example, like my two young boys, risk of circumcision versus not circumcision. I started looking at that data, making that choice because I had to make a choice for them. And so then I'm, we made the choice, looking at the data. We we're like, we're not going to get circumcised because it didn't. If the risks were weighed on that side, at least from what we could tell, um, and that's why I'm. I think we, you know, I'm so opposed to government saying these are the risks we're going to decide for you. This is why I'm so opposed to government mandating these things because everyone's risk is going to be different. A a young person, a healthy person is going to have a different risk than somebody who's uh, even if they're young, if they're overweight, or if there's so many different variables, every individual has to be able to make those choices for themselves. And I really think the medical establishment really did a lot of harm by just painting everyone with a broad brush instead of saying, here's the data, here's what you, you know, here's the information for yourself. You need to make the, you need to make the decision.
2: Especially when they didn't consider people who were exposed to COVID itself vaccinated. That's the most absolute absurd thing, anti-science thing that I've ever seen. And this is what raises eyebrows among people who casually look at these things. And even it raised eyebrows among me.
0: Yeah. Like
2: I, I was looking at a CDC study that was coming out when they were really pushing the vaccine and it said that the vaccine was five times more effective at preventing illness than prior infection. Now, I'll throw this at you guys. What does that mean? If something's five times more effective,
1: what does that mean? It says, it's, it, to me, it says that I'm five times less likely uh, to get that. Well, I'm, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I just said. But like,
2: if assume the COVID vaccine is 100% effective, yeah, and it's five times more effective than prior infection. How effective is prior infection? Only twenty percent. Right. Right. And we know the COVID vaccine is not one hundred percent effective, so it's like less than ten percent effective. You're basically saying prior infection doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I read the press release title and I was like, "Well, that study's wrong." And then I looked at the author list and I was like, "Wow, fifty of the." 50 authors from the most prestigious universities across the world are on this paper. And I, to prevent myself from saying something mean, I, I won't. But just like, I can't believe it. Yeah. Just like, a, a, that's absolutely ridiculous. And one way you can show that this is ridiculous is just like all the research has come out later saying like, oh yeah, prior infection seems to be more effective as like being exposed to the real thing always would be.
0: Right? Yeah, it, it almost, I, again, I, I don't... I, It almost feels to me like there was uh, um, influence at the time because there was concern about people maybe not taking the vaccine to kind of push the narrative a bit there. And, you know, I don't know if I bled over into the medical community. I can't speak to that at all, but say it again. I said that's hard to determine. Yeah, it's absolutely you can't prove it. It's again, um, it's something that's just kind of a gut feeling when you really look at the way a lot of those things were framed at the time uh, and then the backpedaling that's happened since then. Um, one of the things though, that comes up Jacob often, and as somebody who's chronically on Twitter, I see this all the time. Uh, th- there's these anecdotes about, uh, uh athletes dying, falling dead, you know, heart attacks on the field and, uh, and, um, Pat, you know, at right after getting a COVID vaccine, there's sudden death, right? You hear that all the time. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that whole narrative, that whole meme, I guess is what you call it. I mean, Those are
2: anecdotes. Yep. Also have to understand that like heart attack risk on the field has never been zero, but I am a little bit suspicious. I just don't have any way of evaluating it. So I really don't want to make any sort of claim. It is, it, it would be, I mean, I don't even have a database in front of me to tell you whether it's more common right now. Um, It possibly is, but. I'd need to first figure out whether it's more common right now, and then if it is, it needs to be investigated. Yeah, sure. You know I mean,
1: I saw so many, so many videos or so many claims of somebody, you know, falling dead on the field, and you're like, wait, that happened ten years ago. It yeah. couldn't have been the COVID vaccine because yeah. yeah. COVID didn't exist back then. So that kind of brings me into into one I wanted to ask you is how does how does I or Josh or our wives or our friends how do we look at some of what you know the information that's coming in and say. How do we determine what's true, what's not? what's the best way that somebody who hasn't studied these things, who doesn't have a degree in these things can look at these data look at this data, look at this information that's coming in, and how do we how do we parse through it to to make the good decisions for for our own health? I mean, the best way is to find
2: a friend who is somewhat familiar with these things and to ask them. You know what I mean? there's really like you you shouldn't take all your health advice from me you also shouldn't take it all from the CDC. You shouldn't take it all from the FDA. Like no monolith is perfect. And every organization slash person has, um, has s- special interests that are influencing them. So you kind of just have to find sources, a good friend who you trust is a good source for them to kind of explain what's going on. And then you got to question them and you have to throw questions back at back at them. And honestly, that's why like a friend or an organization that you communicate with is good because like, uh, like a lot of people who are my colleagues, they ask me things all the time. And then I say things and they're like, Jake, that's crazy, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, I never considered that. You know what I mean? So even I need to be checked. So I'd say the best, just find an organization or a person who you can kind of check a little bit So you can kind of investigate things yourself so you can make your own best informed decision. Does that sound like decent advice?
1: I I like, I mean, listen, we all, we, you know, we go to our doctor, we get a diagnosis or an opinion. Well, sometimes we go get a second opinion and that's good. That's okay. Like even, you know, even with our own personal doctor who may have been with us for a long time, it's okay to go get a second opinion.
0: And I think that Jacob, you probably, you've already repeated this a couple of times, but I think, you know, just kind of having um, being skeptical in general of you know, people that are making claims is extremely important. I feel like it almost gets lost. It, it, nowadays in society, it feels like people find a claim and then they go seek to validate the claim rather than kind of starting from a position of neutrality and also like listen to people making claims with skepticism first and foremost. And I think that just that kind of focus on, on making sure you're intentional with that is a really important thing to do because otherwise you can get sent down some dangerous rabbit holes. Um, it, 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 what do you think about doing the research on Google? you mentioned you mentioned friends or a lot of people do this on their own right do you have any thoughts on on that on how to effectively um, do any research on your own
2: I that Google's where I do all my research and if you read academic studies on your own you're already doing more research than most doctors there you go so doing your own research I, is good that's why I, I, show,
1: yeah <laughs> I, I like it that's good I think people I think people should learn from the read these things for themselves and, and dig through it and and check themselves. But I think that we also need to, that healthy skepticism is essential. Um, The other night I got challenged about uh, aluminum and vaccines. So I started going down that rabbit hole about what that means and how much is being, you know, ingested through uh, uh, different means. Like, you know, when you're vaccinated, it goes into your muscle and it takes time. It takes a long time actually for it to be distributed out into the bloodstream. Or for example, like you ingested through, uh, obviously not me, an infant would ingest it through breast milk, uh, and how that how much that actually makes their way into you know into 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 their system, um, and so finding finding good sources is 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 key in in understanding some of these topics because I'm looking at some of these things going I don't I don't understand how the the digestive system uh, 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 interacts with aluminum I don't know how you know how much aluminum that gets injected as a vaccine actually makes it into your bloodstream or how quickly it does like these are things that I don't. No, but you can find you can find good source material for some of these things um, to kind of combat some of the you know some of the some of the claims out there.
2: Yeah. Also, another uh, more advice on like who to talk to. Find a doctor that reads academic studies. Um, I, I mean, it's just that clear. Like I said, like there there is an issue with like like uh, like e- like credits that you receive in order to keep your job as a doctor. But like a lot of these things they attend are just like lunches. that have like no information or anything. They're very casual. Like find a doctor who's actually very interested in their field, regularly reads journals associated with their field. And you can kind of figure that out by like next time you're at your checkup or whatever. You're like, oh, did you read this study? And if they have no idea what you're talking about, ask them why. (laughs) I
0: like it. I think
1: what you said earlier was about, you know, doctors just being protocol doctors where they're just going down a protocol. And instead of, instead of really understanding their patient and their patient's need, I think that that, I think that that's a really good point that I hadn't considered before. That really some of them are just going down a checklist and that's not, that's not going to be the best for the patient.
0: Uh, one, well, we have, we have a couple more minutes left. And so I wanted to touch on something that also is just a, um, kind of a broader topic that's been going on since COVID. Uh, vaccine mandates, and I didn't give you any prep on this. So if you don't have data, don't feel free to, you know, we're not worried about data. I'm more worried about kind of your thoughts on it. One of the things that anecdotally, I feel like has to be kind of the case is that if you have a mandate, a vaccine mandate, it inherently is going to increase skepticism among a populace because they're kind of, they're forced to do something against their will. So if you have somebody that's like, I can't, go to my job unless I get this shot. If I may not have wanted to do it voluntarily, but now I'm being forced to do it. I feel like there has to be an effect on vaccine skepticism and vaccine mandates. I'm personally against vaccine mandates, but I'm curious as to whether you have any thoughts on the relationship between skepticism and and, and mandates on that.
2: Like I said, on another show, I, there was the way that I thought about this before was that, there is a theoretical world where vaccine mandates make sense but after seeing what happened with COVID, I absolutely no longer believe it because it's actually a political economy disaster and people being skeptical from mandates is completely legitimate.
0: Yeah.
2: And the, the political economy disaster is if, is it easier to convince the public to take a vaccine or to lobby for a mandate? Is it, easier to make an ineffective vaccine that is not thorough researched, and then lobby politicians to mandate it? Or are you going to like make one of the most incredible discoveries in the world with billions of dollars of research and then actually take the time to convince people to take it? The efficacy of vaccines is why we can't mandate them. It's, the co- it's on the company themselves to convince the public that they work. And that type of motivation is going to ensure that they absolutely do work.
0: Well said. Uh, if you see your friend get vaccinated and then survive a a disease, um, and yeah. you see the market like the market factors there actually operate at work, that that's way more powerful than a mandate. I you know, and one of the things that really disappoints me. It, it really kind of makes me sad. Is that I feel like the, the the public health response to COVID and the introduction of many many mandates for travel for jobs at the federal level, at least, it really set it set people acceptance of vaccines back. Um, now again, you know people are responsible for their own inability to look at the data and look at the facts and figures. So I'm not making any justification otherwise. But I'd say that that is a disappointing truth because. If you want if you want vaccines to be prominent, I don't think vaccine mandates help you with making sure that more people take them. And in the in the in the uh, in the long term, if we're talking about generational time scales. <laughs> Assuming you're not going to continue ma- mandates for the next twenty or thirty years. Um, Jonathan, do you have anything to add on that before I go to some closing questions here? No, go for it. Okay. Um, one of the things that you also mentioned to me, Jacob, uh, which I thought was interesting. Uh, one of the reasons I think I was familiar with you was some of your work on opioids. Yeah. And that's not really directly related to this, but it is related to this in the sense that it was brought up on RFK's podcast about uh, dope sick and some of the, um, I I think claims are misinformation that were brought there. Do you have any commentary on some of his comments there? Maybe you can set us up and give me some context on what he mentioned and why it was maybe off base.
2: Well, I I think this, I think his commentary on opioids actually points to the biggest concern about RFK. There's some things that he's well-researched on and that he prevents Presents that are actually true, but he's doing too many things. He's trying to talk about too many things when these relationships and issues are incredibly complex. And he basically brought up DopeSick as an example of regulatory capture with pharmaceutical companies, with opioids basically taking advantage of the protocol approach with doctors doctors treating pain as another uh, vital sign, and then everyone becoming addicted to opioids. But RFK Jr. has probably not looked at the SAMHSA data that show that opioid addiction over the last 20 years at least has been stable, right? Like there's, there's wow. like glaring things that actually completely undermine the, uh, the narrative of DOPE SICK. Another thing that DOPE SICK won't mention, like there's a quote in DOPE SICK that's repeated a bunch saying that pharmaceutical companies lied that opioids are less than 1% effect or sorry, less than 1% addictive. But guess what? Almost every peer reviewed academic paper, looking at the relationship between addiction and opioid naive patients and whether an opioid naive patients develop an addiction after exposed to opioids, it basically all say it's less than 1%. Hmm. Like it's, it's a, it's a claim that's happening across courts. It's a claim that's in the media and it actually doesn't really have any scientific basis to it. Hmm. Now to keep this in perspective, if between 0.2 and 0.6% of the population that's exposed to opioids does become addictive, which is kind of what the literature says, 0.6% of 90 million people who take opioids is a lot. But I just want to point out that there are, um, explicit objective lies that are being touted in such media such as dope sick and rfk has not done enough research to understand that and i think that's kind of his waterloo with most of the topics that he discusses
1: so so how would you combat this i know that he's people have taught you know he's he's saying nobody will debate me on these things um would you say that the you know scientists should go debate him on whatever show should they how should some of this misinformation be countered? Should it just be releasing articles that say, nope, this is the actual fact should it be in a debate format? How, you know obviously, you know, you're not going to speak for everyone, but for you personally, is this something you should yes, I would debate whoever on this topic because I think that's the most effective way to do this or are you know, where do you line up on that?
2: I would love to talk to them. There you go. <laughs> I mean I, and I mean that sincerely. I yeah, believe it. Yeah. I I think. That debate has to happen. it doesn't need to be like an official Oxford style debate, but you need to get in front of him. He needs to tell you some of the true things about harms that he's seen. he could be like, okay, what about twenty percent less people dying in Africa after exposed to the polio vaccine? right? Is that not good? Like how you know what I mean? like once you like throw that back at him, how does he actually respond? Maybe he has a good rebuttal and it'd be good to know what the good rebuttal is, right? And that's why we do this. like we generally, if you believe in freedom, you believe that people are kind of inherently good and that they're, in, they're able to actually uh, use information for the betterment, not just of themselves, but people around them, right? So exposing people to the discussion, you just have to trust people that they're going to interpret correctly. Otherwise, you just believe in paternalism and want to run everyone's lives. And that's not something I believe in.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, to, to wrap us up, and I think you, 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 we, we, touched on this with the debate and you touched on this in the, the remarks you made before the last question. One of the things that I think we wanted to kind of just reiterate and, and mention was that importance of skepticism and that importance of kind of taking things, uh, you know, not buying into things fully until you can validate them on your own and being intentional and kind of looking at the facts and, and at least assessing multiple different experts before you, you kind of dive full into an idea or an ideology. And that's something that we try to do. And we've encouraged our audience to do that. Um, I don't think we have any other necessarily additional questions. I don't know if you have anything that we maybe didn't talk about, Jacob, that you think would be important to talk about that you should add or any commentary, closing remarks before we close this.
2: No, I I think we touched on about everything. And I think that this conversation is one of the first discussions and commentaries on the RFK uh, podcast that actually addresses what he says. I was looking at what Vinny Prasad said, which is interesting, but like no one actually addresses the articles. No one addresses the actual claims. And I hope that if other people see this, that it actually starts a real conversation and we can move
1: forward.
0: Yeah. I
1: I love it. I'm going to kind of extend on what Joshua said earlier in that when investigating things, we don't have to come to a conclusion. You don't always have to say, I know what's going on here because the reality is nobody really does know what's truly going on. Even the most knowledgeable person in the world doesn't know everything and doesn't understand everything. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that people can have a greater knowledge in certain areas, certainly. But we, we are all looking at this data. We're all trying to interpret this thing. And we don't always have to come to a conclusion. I feel like social media kind of forces us to always come to a conclusion. You always have to say this. This is a fact, period. But yep. you know, this is the way it has to be. And I think that if we if we realize, okay, not everything is just a pure fact. Sometimes things are just an opinion. Sometimes things are not truly decided, even in the scientific community, we can we can understand that. Listen, we can change our opinions as the data comes in, as we <laughs> as our understanding of things grows, we can change our opinion, and that's okay.
0: The science is never settled, and that's actually true. Like that's the way science operates. It that's, is always and like
2: it's not settled.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's always needs to be challenged. If it's not being challenged, it's not science. So um, I'm really glad to hear, Jacob. I'm glad that you took the time to talk to us. It was a great conversation. A breath of fresh air for us from the the Twitterverse of people making crazy claims. I was really glad to uh, have you join us. Thank you again for your time. Been a
2: pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Have a great day, guys.